NZ Aerosports, Icarus Canopies, now Gyro. That's right, we've rebranded, and Gyro is our next generation. It honours our founder, as that's the name we knew him by, but Gyro also marks the start of a new chapter. And not to be biased, but it's going to be fucking epic. Long story short, we're more us than ever. So if you're new to the sport, or even a Sky God Ninja Turtle, welcome. I think our valiant leader Lucy, Gyro's daughter, Says it best. And we still got that fuck your attitude. <laughs> Rebrand! Woo! Rebrand woo indeed, Lucy. Anyway, head over to gyro.com for more info and get amongst your legends. I was 19, broke, unemployed, and sold my girlfriend's canopy for drug money. So, I thought I'd better sell her a new one. What a sentence and what a story. This describes the humble yet outrageous beginnings of NZ Aerosports, the home of Icarus Canopies, in the words of our founder himself. From getting a paratrooper toy from his mom, watching parachutes at the DZ as a six-year-old, jumping off the wharf with a parachute made from bedsheets, doing his first jump at 16, sewing his first canopy on a borrowed machine at 19, and starting to sell parachutes out of a garage in 1986, Paul Gyro Martin had an undying love for the sky. Our company started with one man with the wildest of spirits in a true blue sky dream, a renegade. In the time that Gyro created and ran the Icarus Canopies brand until he passed away in 2017, he pushed everything he had to its limits. We miss him and we always will. Gyro is the next generation of NZ Aerosports. It honors our founder, of course, because it was the name we all knew him by, but Gyro the rebrand also marks the start of a new chapter, our next jump. Gyro is the space between sound and silence, art and science, chaos and calm. Gyro is a state of epic tranquility that transcends understanding. That moment, in the door, in free fall, mid-swoop, where nothing but the present exists. A perfect balance of euphoria and thrill. Gyro captures our passion for flying and our commitment to designing break-the-fucking-rules canopies that deliver pilots pure, wild flight. Coming straight from the cockpit, it's another episode of Lunatic Fringe with the fucking pilot. Ready, set, go! Back in the can for another edition of the Lunatic Fridge podcast, and damn, I've missed this face, man. First, uh, I yeah, who the fuck are you, and how are you, and what do you do, whatever. You fucking look great, man. It's great to see you. Who are you? I feel good, man. My name is Omar Al-Hajlan, and I'm a skydiver just like the rest of you. That, that's <sighs> about it. But listen, I, I wanted to mention something. The last time we talked was actually pretty epic. We were at, perched at 13,000 feet in the Himalayas doing a podcast. How yes, we were. How cool is that? Dude, I thought about that earlier today. I'm like, okay, when's the last time Omar and I did a one-on-one -on -one talk? And then when's the last time I actually spoke to him on the podcast? And it was in Siangbochi after a fucking awesome day of jumping. Yep. 
everybody tired, everybody happy. We're sitting around drinking. I think we had two big pitchers of lemon honey ginger. So a bunch of skydivers drinking tea at 13,000 feet. (laughs) Well, we were in a tea house after all. We were in a tea house. Of course, my overriding uh, memory of that is that I turned down the gracious offer um, by Mr. Matthew Park of a flashlight to get myself the 1,500 vertical feet back down to where my bed was and ended up doing probably 750 feet of it in the dark. And when he says straight down, it is straight down, guys, because going from Siamboche down to Namchi Bazaar is a straight down descent. Dude, it was ridiculous. And of course, I'm trying to move fast because I'm trying to take advantage of what little light that I've got. And the entire time, I'm either half ready to burst into tears or burst into laughter thinking, Omar's going to fucking die laughing if they find my goddamn dead body on the rocks because my dumbass stepped off a cliff. <laughs> hey, we told you so. Yep. Yep. Nobody you did. wants to hear. No, nobody likes hearing it, but. We told you. So. Oh, no, no. Hey, dude, there's sometimes I will cop to being an idiot. And that's definitely one of them. <laughs> you and I both, brother. You and I both. So look, you first off, let's let's uh, reintroduce you to anybody that hasn't heard your previous podcasts and to the young jumpers coming up. That's uh, all they're thinking is Omar who? So my name is Omar Al-Hajlan and I started skydiving uh, 30 years ago, October 3rd. So Congratulations, is- man. Thank 30 you, fucking years. Yeah, man, quite a milestone. So, uh, yeah, started jumping 30 years ago. I was blessed that by the third, by my second year uh, skydiving, I entered a freestyle competition with my then partner and coach Olaf Zipser, and we took second place. Uh, after that, I became world champion in uh, World Cup uh, champion, gold medalist in uh, 1996, and then world champion 97. And in, in 1995, with Olaf and Charles Bryan, we were uh, world champions of free flying with there was the ESPN uh, SSI Pro Tour that went on. And we went ahead and got uh, first place on all four stops becoming world champions back in 1995 with the birth uh, of free flying itself. So uh, I was at the right place at the right time with the right people and was able to accomplish quite a few things. And also a shout out, of course, to my then partner. Uh, he's no longer with us, Orly King, with mm. whom I won all those uh, freestyle accolades. You know, it's funny when I saw your announcement for your 30 years in skydiving, the way that I had always arrange things in my mind because when I started skydiving you were already on your way up and you were already in the chronicles videos that I was watching uh and it, it you you already seemed like the old guard to me you'd bet you were just the top of the fucking pyramid and then it dawned on me wait that motherfucker started skydiving two years before me holy shit and it really kind of puts it in perspective, and it's a really cool thing, especially for the younger jumpers that are listening, that between you and I, experience-wise and time in the sport, we're pretty close. But yeah, as far absolutely. as as far as far experience in the air and what you've done with it, worlds apart. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I, you know, I was really lucky. I was, I was lucky and blessed to be able to do about 1,500 jumps a year mm-hmm. for the first few years of uh, my skydiving career, I was able to team up and hire a coach, uh, Olaf Zipser, who was then a world champion at the time. And so uh, everything really fell into place. I, sure. I and, and not and so that that's half of it. The other half of it was the passion. 
the passion because that's the desire that's the motivation that's the drive without passion you can't get anywhere mm. uh that's my firm belief and so when you put the two together boom miracles happen sure now coming from saudi originally how did skydiving enter your consciousness and and how did you gain the ability to skydive because when you were growing up as a kid there was no such thing as skydiving in saudi arabia yeah, well, uh, interestingly enough, uh, Dean, I didn't grow up in Saudi. Uh, my parents were diplomats, so I grew up uh, around the world. I was born in Madrid, Spain, and then I lived in Venezuela, Denmark, London, U.S. So I traveled all over the world. And uh, because of that, I had always been. I, I, let's let's go back just a little bit. When I was a little kid, I remember there used to be a cartoon. None of you know it now because uh, cartoons have changed. But it was called Mighty Mouse. And uh, and so Mighty Mouse, you know, he was this little mouse, this little kid, and he had this cape on and he would fly and he would save. And so from an early age, I always wanted to fly. Uh, now, a few years later, uh, as an adolescent, I started watching the James Bond movies. And I remember seeing all those incredible scenes of... Uh, of uh, James Bond jumping off the mountain, whether he was skiing and then he opened his parachute base, basically base jumping, ba ski base jumping at the time, which was really incredible when you think about it, how long ago. Oh yeah. Uh, and uh, so that always put in a desire in me to jump. I had always wanted to do it. And I remember watching Moonraker and uh, seeing that actually the, the stunt double for Roger Moore actually went and started tracking towards one of the other characters. Jaws, I believe, uh, was his name. Yeah. And I thought, oh, my God, you can actually fly. You can move. It's not just falling. And that, again, built a fire within me. Uh, it took a while before I was able to get that fire and turn it into reality. Uh, the opportunity came across a few times, but somehow life always got in the way. And I never did until my friend in Washington, D.C., Jean-Luc Vivier. Here's a, a hi to you, buddy. And uh, he, he was a hairdresser at the time. And uh, I was getting my hair haircut and he's like guess what i'm doing this weekend i'm like what are you doing this weekend he said i'm gonna go do an aff i'm like what the hell's an aff he goes it's an advanced uh, free fall program in skydiving i'm like no you're not he goes what do you mean i'm not i said we are and i went <laughs> with him and the rest was history and so really thanks to jean-luc thank you buddy thanks to you all this happened and i am here today doing this podcast with dean thanks to you bro you know it's so funny that uh, um that uh your movie inspiration was moonraker because everybody mm -hmm. else it's drop zone it's of course point break you know it's oh, it's absolutely. those pivotal movies but you got bit by the bug via movies much much earlier because moonraker was a long time before point break oh yeah way before way before i'm telling you i always had this desire. i remember when i was i uh, must have been about six or seven years old and I had climbed up to like a little tower it was like probably a equivalent to a third or fourth floor and I remember looking over and having this desire to jump well, I wasn't suicidal I wasn't going to jump I didn't want to kill myself but I remember having that desire that want to jump sure and I had always have had it in me and so fast forward now to uh, what was it? 19 October 3rd, 1993. I go to my first AFF. It was in St. Mary's County. And uh, I'll never forget it. I did my jump. I landed on my ass, of course, crashed and burned. 
But I stood up, I threw my arms up in the air and I was, I was born to do this. And I had finally <laughs> found the light. I, I finally found the missing piece. Hmm. You know, all my life I had, I'd always been envious of musicians and athletes. I'm like, oh, wow, check out these guys. They really get to live off of their passion. And you know what? I found it that same day it clicked. And that's what I've been doing for the past 30 years. Just you know of that passion it's funny because as an instructor a long time instructor i would land so many times and you get people that have that reaction oh my god this is exactly what i'm supposed to be doing and one tenth of one percent of them actually follow through with it and it always it, i mean it's it's super cool for the ones that you see that have done that but it's also there's something that's a little bit sad about the people that you know had just the most incredible time and went away and fucking life just went and got back in the way you it know happens. It, it happens, happens. This, this is life i mean we do what we can you know where we yeah, have man. to be happy for for what we can get and you know bless the others and you know always be supportive that's the most so, important what the, the, I'm, I'm sorry not not to interrupt you but just one please. quick shout out to kevin gibson who was the dzo at the time of that drop zone and a wonderful fellow he worked for uspa for many many years and so thanks kevin again <laughs> thanks to you too i am here right now with dean it's it's lovely being able to look back and see the few pivotal characters that kind of aimed you in that direction. Mine uh, was a guy named Rob Ogle, who was managing the flyaway wind tunnel at the time, who put me in the air in a tunnel for the first time. And I'm sure lied and told me, you're a natural. You should go jump. I'm <laughs> sure it was. And what a tunnel that was. Oh, right? my God, dude. It was it was horrendously wonderful. <laughs> horrendously for, wonderful for those that don't know it's a kind of tunnel there was way back then you had to wear these huge balloon suits just to be able to get any kind of lift off yeah you know oh, the yeah. one benefit to that tunnel was it taught me how to be a good camera flyer for the time because it taught me how to fly cloth yep exactly Exactly. You know, I, I learned how to fly a wing, even though it was just this massive floppy piece of shit. It worked and it, and it taught me how to fly a wing. But it was him. And then uh, a guy you may have met through your travels, uh, uh, Mike Skeffington. Um, so Mike Skeffington ended up running the, uh, the video concession out in Cross Keys, big time uh, jumper and base jumper and everything. And the first time I met him, he was the guy behind the counter uh, talking me into getting the video um, at the drop zone that I was going to yeah. jump at in Las Vegas. And he was just such a sweetheart and such a welcoming guy that, of course, you just throw the money down because you trust this guy. And and he yeah. was right. He was right. Um, so yeah. it's great being able to look back and see those mentors along the way. Now, Absolutely. when you're doing this, what are your um, very uh, regimented, I don't, I don't want to say regimented, but very professional parents? I mean, they have a big time important jobs and they're traveling the world doing diplomatic stuff. What do they yeah, think? They, uh, they thought I was coco loco. <laughs> <laughs> all, all of them. I mean, all my friends, my family, everybody thought that I was a little out there. Well, they knew I was already out there that sure. I had always proven to be, to be that person, that guy. But uh, by the same token, you know, as, as crazy as it sounded and as out there as it was, they were extremely supportive. That's awesome. And, you know, God bless him for that. Well, this is also at a time when when skydiving wasn't like it is today. It was still very fringe. It was not mainstream. You know, you could see stuff, but every time skydiving was portrayed in the movies or, or local media, it was 
always some horrible news, you know, uh, show that Scott ever dies and they don't explain why, or exactly. it's a horrible presentation on some film that makes us look ridiculous. So it was a different time. So I can imagine explaining to friends and family, this is what you want to do is kind of tough. Yeah. And then when you when you add insult to injury and you have a guy who just started skydiving, didn't even have his A license, who went through the DZ while he was waiting for, for the next load to go up. And so he starts going through all the tapes of the different world meets and, okay, what is there to do? Okay, four-way. All right, eight-way. Okay, style and accuracy. Okay, freestyle Ooh, i like that <laughs> watching the video started watching the videos i'm like you know what i'm gonna be a world champion and i started telling everybody i'm gonna be a world freestyle world champion everybody's like bro you don't even have your a license calm down same with my family same with my friends they're all like relax buddy it's okay and i'm like no 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 you guys don't understand i know you guys don't know but i know so it's... yeah I, you know sorry dad sorry mom well, it's so funny because you were, if if memory serves me, you were on your way to being a proper high-powered business guy. Like that was your life, right? Yeah. I mean, I was working in a bank and I was, or you know, I was going that way. I was an international equity dealer and I was going that whole business route. Did it ever cross said, your yeah. mind? Was there ever a, a definitive decision to leave it behind or did it just gradually creep up on you that that was gone? Oh no, I, it was, dude, I threw my hands up in the air. I knew what I was doing. <laughs> I was I'm selling everything. I'm quitting everything. And this is the path I'm taking. Uh, I, went fucking... living, I went from living in Washington, DC in a super nice apartment to a trailer in Eloy, Arizona. If that explains <laughs> it all. That says a lot, man. You know, it's funny. I, I had a guy on that I, as a guest a couple of years back by the name of Gray Milner. And just like you, I think he had just gotten his A license um, okay. and decided, I'm going to go be a skydiver. That's it. And he'd been working a long time and making really good money in the construction industry, quit his job, sold his house, bought a, a bus that he converted and has yep. been spending the last couple of years traveling the world, just jumping. And he's fucking as happy as you can possibly be. And I had him on when it first got started because I saw his post when he said, I'm chucking it all and I'm going to do this. And I'm so pleased to see that the uh, adventure has been exactly what he hoped it would be, just like yours was. Absolutely. It's amazing. You know, uh, Pablo Coelho, the author of The Alchemist, said it best. He said, if you follow your dreams, the whole world conspires with you or the universe conspires with you to make it happen. And I think it's true. Yeah, it's man. All, yeah. Following your passion, following your dreams. Well, the thing is, I'll tell you with that, though, there is a caveat in that, like you, people that follow their dreams need to put in the work. So there's a big difference between this is what I want to happen and I'm just going to sit here, do nothing and ask the universe for it. And right. people like you who ask the universe, not ask, you demand it from the universe by going out and getting it. Absolutely. You got to pay your dues. You got to yeah, you get it. Yeah. yeah. It's funny, though. Again, um, right place, right time stuff to to walk into skydiving, um, open eyes and very hopeful and then quite quickly end up being coached and training with Olav, who at the time there wasn't a skydiver on the planet that didn't know who Olav was. Um, right. 
And next thing you know, it's it's you and Olaf doing these amazing things. And then you and this incredible crew of jumpers that, I mean, without overstating it, defined what it is to be a modern skydiver. Absolutely. And you know what? It was back in 1994. It was the summer of 1994. I had just met Olaf and we started uh, training together. I believe it was April that we started training and summertime came along and we brought in his ex-partner, Mike Vale, to come and film us. And that's where the three-way free flying was really born. And that's where we got all these base movements that everybody takes for granted today uh the vertical compress the foot to foot the mind warp all those all those moves that you see today we we were literally thinking of actually getting the first baton to do the first baton pass because we did the first handshake you know inverted vertically so on and so forth so uh yeah we got we got to create a lot of what is uh the basis of today's free flying um compulsories if you want or initial moves but going back to what you were saying that comment about how it's evolved and it's taken over i'll never forget that one day i was in eloy it was charles myself and olaf and at the time we were still wearing big baggy suits a little bit like those tunnel suits a little yeah. bit smaller they were still quote unquote like the old balloon suits of the late 70s and uh 70s and 80s mm. and uh we uh we I'll, ne I'll never forget this i was walking we were walking with them past the mock-up to the bus that will take us to the plane and there's like these uh, guys that were doing rw and i overhear him say one looks at the other and he goes yeah those guys they're just a fad they're gonna die off just like sky surfing did <laughs> i remember initially getting a little upset and i was on the bus and i was like grinding my teeth thinking about what i had just heard and I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, okay, you know what, guys, you're laughing now, but I'll guarantee you within a few years, everybody's not going to go to RW as soon as they finish their AFF and their A license. They're going to, they're going to start free flying. And you know what? Oh yeah. It's, it you happens. know, it's, it's kind of funny because when that was happening for you, um, I was just dipping my toes into this new thing called free flying um sitting in a trailer in the uh, the ghetto in Paris Valley uh in a like a 17 foot pop up getting stoned watching South Park and Chronicles videos and the the um images that stick out in my mind more than anything were you doing the now iconic jump shirtless in blue jeans with your hands on your hips and this amazing fucking pose doing this head down spin Charles Bryan doing something similar with the clown mask on and his dreadlocks halfway down his back and Olav upside down on his head, running to the camera, doing two loops, turning around and running away. Exactly. Those images burned into my brain. And it was there that I and my generation of skydivers, the new up and comers knew that's what it is. That's what's coming. Like, at that time, for sadly for the guys that thought that you know uh, free flying was going to fade away, this is just when the fire was getting lit. I mean, holy shit, they couldn't have been more wrong and more wrong so quickly. Absolutely, and I'm so glad. I'm so glad to see that because I mean, it's it's normal. Who who wants to stay two dimensional when they can fly three dimensionally? I mean, sure. 
Well, and the thing is, too, though, um, free flying and learning how to fly in any angle, in any orientation, only adds to their ability to fly on their bellies. I've had four-way and eight-way guys that are like, of course I learned how to free fly because it teaches me the nuances of every body position in every way, and I can fly dramatically better in this particular portion of the competition as well as all this other stuff you know i mean it's it the more the better you learn how to fly in every orientation the better it is absolutely and let's not forget that free flying incorporates belly flying it's yes. flying any orientation head down head up angle belly back you name it as long as you can move your body and get get to where you want to be as effortlessly and as smoothly as possible guess what you're free flying Oh, absolutely. Well, and I remember telling an AFF student that was really having a hard time wrapping his head around stability and, and exiting the aircraft and feeling like he was just out of control for the, you know, down the slide and for the first 10 seconds of the jump. And I told him, look, it's not going to be long at all before you've gotten to a level where someone could blindfold you and throw you out of an airplane in any body position and you'll fly it. Yep. That's absolutely. it. And Absolutely. that's that's what free flying did more than anything. That's what free flying did is you just the instant the air hits your body, you don't have to think about how to fly it. You're just flying it. Exactly. Which is amazing. So the autopilot. Yeah. So uh, let's catch up on all the shit that's been happening recently. First off and foremost, sure. I can't believe we haven't talked about this on the podcast. Dude, you're in the fucking Hall of Fame. <laughs> Thank you. What an honor that was. That totally blindsided me. I had Did no it? idea. Oh, oh, honestly, completely. I had never in a million years, honestly. See, uh, I, and I, I love that 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 humbleness is actually there, and I truly, sincerely believe it. But part of me is like, "Fuck you! How did you not know?" No, bro. Honestly, <laughs> I didn't. I I had. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I had. I had gotten in touch with uh, the International Museum, and I had mentioned that I believed that the free fight clowns, as in Olaf, Mike Vale, myself, Charles Bryan, and Stefania Montenegro mm. should be uh, should be recognized as the ones that brought free flying into the modern world, or at least brought some structure to it. I mean, people had been trying to free fly for a long time, but sure. we were the first group uh, led by Olaf, who actually took that and did it in such a way, in such a manner that we could not only do it correctly, but we were able to now dissect it and teach it. And so uh, for that, I believe that we all deserved a mention, an accolade. Um, but I never thought in a million years that they would eventually call me. And uh, I was nominated by a wonderful gentleman in Australia. Uh, and it's, uh, it was an honor is such an honor to this day. I'm, I'm honestly, I, I'm humbled by it. I mean, uh, as soon as I heard it, my response was a lot like when the rock and roll hall of fame, uh, um, finally put rush in the, 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 in the, yeah, absolutely. About the same thing. It was, uh, it's about fucking time. Of okay. course. Absolutely. That's that's really what I thought. And and uh, um, going back to your comment about the, the clowns and Stefania, one of the pivotal moments that I remember seeing that kind of capped off this is here and this is happening. This is going to continue is when Olav and she exited the airplane and went ballroom dancing in free fall in free fall. 
How cool is that, huh? I remember watching her pirouette as smoothly as if they had been on a fucking dance floor. And for anybody, any of the younger kids that haven't seen this, I believe you should be able to find all the Chronicles videos on YouTube somewhere. They're they're all on there. Man, go YouTube Chronicles 1, 2, and 3. There's a little bit of TNA in there as well, which is, you know, whatever. Uh, It's fun. Uh, and a little bit of base jumping, but some of the most pivotal moments in, at least for me, skydiving, and that was one of them, was watching that dance. And that's when you kind of knew, oh, this shit's here, you know. So for for cut to all these years later, for it to finally end up with you in the Hall of Fame, I, I don't understand how that didn't happen earlier. Thanks, man. Appreciate yeah. it. So beyond all of that, you've been busy as hell since we last talked. Super, super busy. I mean, uh, again, uh, becoming president of the Saudi Arabian Extreme Sports Federation. So I've been tasked to bring extreme culture to the kingdom, uh, mainly in two forms. Uh, Number one is skateboarding and number two with skydiving. So some of you might be saying, well, skateboarding, that's not really extreme. But uh, for a country like Saudi Arabia, uh, our our federations, our sports federations uh, fall under the Saudi Olympic Committee. And because of that, since uh, skateboarding became part of the Olympics last year, they wanted to make sure that we start to bring and try to bring skate culture into the kingdom. And they put that under the umbrella of the Extreme Sports Federation. So I've been super stoked and working and trying to do activations, uh, so working hard and trying to raise funds to, to build skate parks and to get drop zones built. And in the meantime, what we have been doing is we've been doing a lot of events uh, for both in the kingdom. So now I believe we're at event either five or six in terms of doing pop-up drop zones. We have have been doing these pop-ups in all over the country from Riyadh to Jeddah to Medina. And it's uh, basically a way of uh, keeping our community uh, in touch. So those who already jump, having them a way to keep a current in jumping. And for those that had never tried it, to actually get themselves certified in the kingdom by Saudis for Saudis. So it's been really incredible. Well, you know, it's uh, you and I uh, spent quite a lot of time together working in Dubai, uh, and we would have Saudi nationals coming and jumping all the time because that was the spot to go. It was also the closest spot to be able to come out and do a lot of jumps. Is the goal to be able to progress skydiving in Saudi um, to a level where you've got your own uh, high-end drop zone that's cranking out, not just tandems for people that are, you know, checking it out, but for the pros, just like Dubai has done. That, that is exactly the goal. That's the dream. The dream is to have a world-class, state-of-the-art drop zone or drop zones, uh, probably one in Jeddah and one in Riyadh, if not more, and uh, definitely tap into this very young market. I mean, you have to understand that over 70% of the Saudi population is 30 years and younger. So we've got an extremely young population that, for lack of better words, has been in prison for the past 50 years. And now the shackles, thanks to Mohammed bin Salman, the shackles have come up, the doors have swung open, the the dam has broken, and now we have this freedom to go and experience. You know, for 50 years, we didn't have uh, tourism. 
tourism was not allowed. So if you wanted to come visit Saudi, you needed to have a letter from a company inviting you. And then it wasn't even a guarantee that you would get the visa. Now you can get it in in five minutes online yeah. so the country has opened up the country is flourishing the country is pushing sports like never before and this young population is really so excited to be able to go and to start doing all these incredible sports sure like skydiving, skateboarding and many many more you know it's funny because uh saudi really jumped into my consciousness as soon as i heard about the project neo um mm-hmm. which is this enormous uh, I, I can't even describe Neom. Neom is just this huge section of really cool shit that's right on the Red Sea, yes? Yeah. So it's, it's everything. It's, it's, the Red Sea and the mountains and Jordan. So you can imagine it's got a mixture of everything. The, the topography is so beautiful from mountainscapes to the most beautiful seaside that you could ever imagine, untouched, unspoiled. And now you have in this incredible area, the possibility, thanks to the vision of our leaders, to build Neom and to be able to build what is going to be one of the most incredible. I mean, imagine being able to build a city from scratch. Sure. See, most m- most architects, when they rebuild the city, and again, that's the key word, rebuild, is they take land that has already had existing infrastructure and they try to change it. Up. But here they decided, okay, we've got a clean slate. Let's think outside of the box. Mm. And so one of the most incredible things that they're doing, and uh, time will tell whether it's amazing or not, is the building the line. So it's a 170 kilometer city, but instead of building it in a in a flat, round, circular area like most cities are, they decided to take the same thing. And imagine if you took like Manhattan and folded it up and then made it 170 kilometers long, yep. that's pretty much what they're building. So it's going to be super exciting. That and many other projects. That's just one of many projects in Neom. Sure. Well, you know, and and having had the opportunity a couple of years back with one of the other pilots from Scout of Dubai, I had to fly one of the twin otters from Dubai to Switzerland, which meant flying across the entire length and breadth of Saudi on my way through Egypt and then over the Mediterranean. And I don't think either one of us did anything other than spend our time looking out the windows. I'd like to say that I was paying attention to being a pilot, but I was just the entire time looking outside going, are you fucking kidding me? You know, and for it to go and and such varied landscape, anybody that thinks the desert's ugly has never actually been in the desert. Exactly. It's a beautiful place. Now I I will talk a a little shit because you mentioned, um, planning, uh, having, you know, the, the, uh, ability to plan a city from scratch. I had a great tour in Dubai, but goddamn, whoever designed those roads fucked up. <laughs> you know, here's here's the thing about that. I, I heard this said, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's true. Or I, again, I don't know what I don't know, so it could be fake news. But I think that it, the roads in Dubai were actually designed for left drive mm. system, and then at the last minute they switched it. And that's why I think that a lot of the off-ramps are really strange because they're going the wrong way. Yeah, that actually that actually kind of makes sense because, well, and you know, you live in Dubai for any length of time and you realize that if you miss your turn, that just added 30 minutes to your day. Like, <laughs> <That's pretty laughs> 
there's no U-turn. There's no nothing. And my yeah. favorite, and for those jumpers that have either been to or will be going to get that uh, iconic palm shot, free fall over the palm, uh, is the ramp to nowhere. That highway that just fucking stops. They just stops. stop building right it. At the entrance. And they turned it into basically billboards. Every time something happens, they just hang something off the side of this off-ramp that doesn't go anywhere. But, but you know what, Dean? Again, you and I don't know what they know. And so oh, yeah. eventually we're going to wake up one morning and it's just going to be... Yeah. Well, you know, the, the, the actually the last I heard uh, was that there is another massive uh, uh, high-rise going up right in that lot across from where that off-ramp is, where they used to hold the equestrian events on the drive going into Skydive Dubai. So right. I'll be interested going into the future to see what the Palm Drop Zone has coming, simply because if they put another you know, 80, 100-story building literally yeah. right next to the drop zone, it's already, you know, I mean, the palm it's can tight, be a... And it's getting tighter. I mean, I don't know when was the last time you looked at it, but it's... I, I, I did a compare and contrast. I was looking at pictures of it when I first jumped there back in 2010, and I compared it to now. Oh, my God. I yeah. mean, it's yeah. unbelievable, unrecognizable. And it's it's a uh, it's a challenge not just for the jumpers but for the pilots as well going in and out of that strip because it's a one way in one way out now pretty much um, right. and I, I've I've likened it to an extremely busy drop zone in Central Park. <laughs> pretty much, that's, that's what that's, it's like. That's pretty much it. That's that's exactly what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and all. And only in Dubai could you manage to do something like that, really. Now, the benefit, I would think, with everything that you've got uh, potentially going on in Saudi is that because you're planning it all from scratch, it's very easy to pick these locations for drop zones where that's not going to happen, where it's, you know, um, a, a drop zone designed by jumpers for jumpers. For jumpers, exactly. And that's that's what we're actively working very hard to do. And uh, fingers crossed. Within a couple of years, we should start seeing something popping up and people actually jumping and people coming to Saudi to jump. And and again, for instance, the last pop up that we did, we had quite a we had a group of at least ten or so, if not more, international jumpers that came to jump with us. To, that sure. came with the local Saudis to jump, and they were all blown away just by the topography of Medina. That was just gorgeous. Of course. Well, yeah. and besides the stuff that you've had going on in Saudi. Man, I see pictures of you jumping in the coolest fucking places. Like, I, I love you to death, but I kind of hate you sometimes. I really do. I understand. So do, do me a favor. What are you doing December 10th to the 15th? I don't know. I don't know. What are you doing what? is the better question. Why don't you come with me to Kenya and let's go swoop some giraffes? See? See? Look at this. Look at this. Kenya. 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 And, and, and I got it's one. Uh, please, first off, tell me about Kenya, and then I've got oh. a bone to pick with you. All right, I'll tell you and then pick. Uh, so I met this wonderful uh, lady by the name of Zainab, wonderful Kenyan lady, uh, through a very good friend of mine, uh, of both of ours. His name is Karim Adur. He introduced us, and uh, then the whole ball got rolling, and we started working on helping Zainab get uh, a boogie going for her drop zone. So Zainab is the first Kenyan DZO. She is the first Kenyan to get her ratings. She's a tandem uh, instructor. She's a senior rigger 
and now a DZO at uh, Go Jump Kenya and Khalifi at Vipingo Ridge. Wow. And it's one of the most incredible setups that you will ever see, simply because she is based off of this resort called Vipingo Ridge. Vipingo Ridge has a PGA golf course in its grounds. It has, uh, you know, five-star accommodations and villas, and it has uh, a runway right there on it. <laughs> and so... Imagine you have the runway, you have the PGA golf course, you have everything. So it's perfectly laid out and it's an animal sanctuary. So you have these uh, orphan giraffes and a lot of orphaned animals that are brought there and taken care of by the Kenyan Wildlife Service. And it's incredible. I mean, you wake up in the morning, you open the door, you look out and you're having your coffee and you see zebras crossing and monkeys jumping and gazelle. And you're you're like, dude, pinch me. Is this possible? Yeah. And then you go jump and they have this beautiful beach club and you land right on the pristine white sand over by, you know, with the the, the Indian Ocean lapping at your feet as you come in, as you drag a toe. It is just incredible. And then the possibility to do golf course landings as well when the tide is too high and you can't use the beach. So the setup is incredible. Zainab, I love you. Keep doing what you're doing. You're doing an amazing job. And so I invite any and all of you who want to come and experience this. We're going to be doing many, many more boogies, but the next one will be a relatively small boogie. And it's going to be December 10th or 11th to the 16th or 17th to be determined. So Dean, if you're available, I would love to, man. Well, and that's now the second offer that I've been made by you or groups of friends of yours that uh, just kill me if I'm going to have to turn down. So hopefully I don't have to. Now, don't turn it down. Bring your wife and come. Yeah. Now, Kenya specifically, I know from a a previous manager out at the Desert Drop Zone in Dubai is from Kenya and her dad flies out there and, and just uh, tells everyone how absolutely stunning it is out there. And I've seen pictures, so I know. But one thing I do know, and this is where I get to pick that bone. Okay. You got to set up a fucking boogie in Bali, God damn it. <laughs> and I tried, man, me and a good buddy of mine, uh, who you probably know, Nitka from Dubai. Uh, yep. He and I have spent literally years in Bali in, in a place called Changu. And we started doing research into how you could make it possible. And everyone we talked to said, nope, no way. You're going to have to talk to the Indo government. They're never going to have it. It's never going to happen. How the fuck, man? <laughs> well, you can't, honestly, I, I'm, I, I'm lucky on this one. I'm out of this picture because I didn't, I didn't organize it. I'm strictly an LO there, but it's uh, the hard work of two gentlemen, Mustafa and Mahmoud, Mustafa Saeed and Mahmoud Sharaf, the same two guys that have been uh, doing the jump uh, like a pharaoh over the pyramids. They're the ones that set it all up. They're the ones that got in touch with uh, the Indonesian uh, skydiving uh, group and with the Indonesian military. And together, the between the three of them, we're able to figure out and put it all together. And yeah, so man. now it's gonna it's gonna be a yearly event, jumping from C one thirties over uh, Seminyak and landing right on the beach. Man, we had done the uh, the prospectus for a 182 operation and the potential for the money to be made at an airfield that would have been an hour long bus ride from Seminyak to get to a field that we would have had to build on our own. And the, the prospectus for money, the income that would come in was 
worth it enough to buy a bus, build an airfield and do all of this stuff because it's, I mean, it's Bali, it's, it's, it's tourism and it's people looking for an amazing time in a, a incredible place. And it's stunningly beautiful. Like it's Bali. It's Bali. It's Bali. It's amazing. Now, the one thing that has happened because of this, all this notoriety is that the traffic has become horrendous. I mean, you land at night uh it it takes you at least an hour just to go from the airport to Semenyak. i mean yeah. you know that distance it shouldn't take more than 15 minutes yeah and uh but here's where we got really really lucky if you can believe this imagine every morning you've got three buses full of people with a motorcycle police escort <laughs> would come and take us and split the seas of traffic and let these buses with skydivers go to the uh, military base, the Air Force base, which is at the international airport. Right. And get in there in like less than 15 minutes. Oh, I'll tell you what, though, you would almost need that because if you let a bunch of skydivers there for a boogie loose on scooters, you'd kill half of them on the scooters. My last true and proper near-death experience, and it's sad that I have to say my last, but my last near-death experience was on a fucking scooter in Bali. And I remember going to bed that night going, I can't have my epitaph read. I died on a scooter in Bali. (laughs) No kidding. I'll talk about a crazy way to go after all the things that you've done in your life. Yeah. One of the most dangerous things in the world I've ever done is ride a scooter in Bali. Oh, no. But I mean, what a stunning place. And and it's been... Especially considering the last time we talked was kind of the pandemic era, how much has happened since then, and and uh, what a positive turn everything has taken for you. And I and I wanted to mention one more thing about Bali is that as beautiful as the place is, the people are a hundred times more beautiful, mm. and that's really what made it. It's mm. the people in Bali are just so genuinely nice and friendly and accommodating. Yeah, really incredible. The uh, the villas that a group of skydivers and I owned, um, well, I say owned, but as a foreigner, you can't own any any property in Bali. You can lease. Right. So we had lifetime right. leases on two villas before um, COVID hit. And talk about the most caring, helpful people you've ever seen. Um, we rented the places from the family, rented them out on Airbnb, and the family were our drivers. They were our housekeepers. They were our managers of the property. They rented our guests scooters and all this stuff. And I remember going to the head of the family and asking him quite bluntly, I'm like, look, we're actually making a profit off of these places. Why aren't you guys, why don't you just Airbnb it? And he just kind of smiled at me and he went, I know exactly how much I'm making. I know exactly who it's coming from and where it's coming from. I don't have to deal with anything. And you're paying me more to deal with the problems you have to fix why would i want to do that and i'm like that's fair enough <laughs> okay yeah no they're really they're really wonderful people at the end of the day there's there's so like i said accommodating warm friendly it, it it's amazing i look forward to going back there now during that boogie are you guys taking tandems or is it strictly sport jumpers it's both it's uh, sports jumpers and tandems so there you go for the people that are listening that uh, are still in that tandem phase and not sure they want to become a jumper. Try and set some time aside to go make your next tandem over Bali. 
Exactly. So uh, I think uh, last year, th this year was in June. Um, I think they're going to try and make it in May next year. So certain, you know, pencil in, in your schedule and your diary, put in a big circle for May and write Bali Boogie. Yeah, man. Well, and, and that's when, when it really kicks off the whole season of it as well. And there's so many other things that you can do. So you can go jump as well as God knows how many other things. So, oh my God, so many. Uh, what are the big events? Are you are you heading back to the Himalayas this year? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, at the end, well, I'm going to uh, Eloy now in October for the Hall of Fame weekend. And I'm going to go hang out over there, celebrate my 30 years in Eloy, meet a lot of friends that I haven't seen in many, many, some decades, yeah. I am sad to say. Um, and then after that, I'll be going to Jump Like a Pharaoh at the end of October, 31st of October to November 5th, 6th, will be Jump Like a Pharaoh, the sixth time that I go there. Well, it's volume six. And then after that, back to uh, Nepal for Everest Skydive doing some beautiful halo jumps from Siamboche at 13,000 feet and landing at that altitude, which a lot of people don't realize. Not only do we trek there for a few days to set up camp and everything, but then we end up taking off from there with all our oxygen equipment and then landing at that altitude, which makes sure. it quite a lot of quite different. Well, and this last year when I was up there with you, you and Matthew opened up new landing areas. So you landed at the base of what oh, mountain? Amada Blum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amada man. Blum. We, we landed over there, which was exciting because now we're landing at 15.5. And that's a beautiful, and it's a, what a beautiful place. I mean, uh, when, when you say Everest skydive, I mean, Everest is because we know of Everest. We know we, everybody's heard of it. And it's just such an incredible mountain in it of itself. But we still land quite a ways away from it. It's not like we're landing in the base camp. Sure. Here, we literally go and jump right next to Amada Blom, one of the most beautiful. To me, I think it's even more beautiful than Everest itself. Not sure. as high, but as a mountain itself. It just, it's just an incredible peak. So well, beautiful. The the difference between Everest and, and Amadablam is uh, one is the, the mystique in the lore of Everest because it's the highest mountain in the world and because so many people have climbed and died on that mountain. And then Amadablam, which is, they call it the Matterhorn of Nepal, when it's exactly that. And I think it's in the village of Dingbochi. You're sleeping there and no matter what window you look out, Amadablam is just right there in your face man and it's 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 so incredible you do that uh, um that acclimation hike above dingboche and you're still not even barely to the level of base camp for amatabla it's incredible right stunningly beautiful and i remember being so incredibly jealous when you guys were going and opening up that landing area that i couldn't see it happen because it's such a stunning place i watched you guys take off from sangbochi and and then, yeah and then i watched the helicopter come back in knowing that you're not you're already at amadablam going oh man <laughs> it was so it was, cool it was incredible and we're going to keep opening new spots in higher and higher places so keep an eye out you might you might see some exciting stuff coming up. Well, and was it Wendy Smith that uh, was part of the crew that landed on top of Kalapatar? Uh, yes, Wendy Smith, I believe, and Tom Noonan, if I'm not mistaken, landed yeah. in Kalapatar. And uh, our friend Peash actually went even higher, and he landed in the North Coal of Burundi. 
Uh, he wasn't able to declare it as a Guinness record because of technicalities with GPS, what have you. Sure. But at the end of the day, he's got the world record. Bravo, Peash. Good job well, on that one. I remember because um, I did this last time around, I did the the hike up to the top of Kalapatar because that's where I released Ashes of a Few Friends. And I remember as I'm up there going, Are they landed parachutes here. <laughs> Imagine. Imagine. There's, there's barely enough air to catch your breath, let alone flare a canopy. I think it's what five thousand five hundred meters, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. Yeah, yeah, that's the highest part on the entire trek. I think the only other spot that comes close is Gokyo Ri. Yeah, Gokyo yeah. Ridge. Yeah. yeah. Uh, otherwise, wow, man, wow. And that 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 brings up another memory. We're gonna eventually have to have another one where you go into great detail about your experience the first time you ever went and hiked the Everest region and ended up um having Russell uh Brandt. Russell Bryce. <laughs> Russell, Russell Bryce. Bryce. That's yeah. right. Having Russell Bryce give you a hand with a few issues you may have had. Yeah, absolutely. That's for another day, but absolutely that that was wow. What what, yeah, an, man. what an introduction to the mountain. And well, we'll talk about it next time when we actually talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. So again, uh, as I usually do with the podcast, as we get towards the tail end, first off, how do people follow you on social media? How do they find out where to find you? How do they find out about events that are going on? Absolutely. My uh, handle on Instagram is abudunya, A-B-U-D-U-N-I-A-420. Uh, my daughter's name is Dunya, and Abu in Arabic means father of. So father of Dunya, and she was born at 1630, 1620, excuse me. So that's 420. So uh, there you have it. Abu Dunya 420 is my Instagram handle. And otherwise on Facebook, Omar Al-Hajlan or Omar Al-Hajlan Athlete, both of those uh are there and you can find out all the information to all the boogies and everything that I do. So uh, please log in, uh, befriend me, do whatever it is that you do nowadays on social media. I don't even know. Is it, are you tweeting? Are you liking? <laughs> are you loving? Are you friending? Are you yeah. whatever it is that you're doing? Please do it. And we can stay in touch and you can come and join us in all these wonderful experiences. Um, I mean, whether it's jumping uh, over the Seychelles and landing on the most incredible pristine blue water or the same thing in the Maldives or uh, Kenya and swooping giraffes or uh, going to Antarctica and landing on the seventh continent uh, where there's absolutely nothing or who knows, jumping over the North Pole. You know, all these places have been jumped. They're doable. They're jumpable. There are events or that can be created for those who want. And uh, yeah, please do stay in touch and let's go ahead and uh, do some fun stuff together. Man, oh man, would you have ever thought 30 years ago. Not in a million years. It's been a great ride, hasn't it? And hey, it's not over. No, it's definitely not over. I hope another 30. I hope I'll be here talking to you in another 30 and telling you what happened in those 30. You know, we're so lucky that we're, I kind of think we were born in just the right time because we are of a generation that can keep going stronger so much longer than those that came before us because of those that came before us. And, and we kind of know that um, fitness and, and mental health and all that stuff are so important to be able to continue to do these kind of things. And we get to do this shit so much longer than, than those that came before. Cause I don't know about you, 
but I'm I'm a 15, 16 year old with 54 year old joints. No kidding, right? That's it. I'm still yeah. a kid, man. I, I I have no desire to grow up. And I finally figured out, like you, that there's a way to be responsible without growing up. You don't have to grow up. No. Peter Pan. Peter Pan all the way. Yeah, man. Yeah. All right, Peter. Absolutely. It's been, it's been it, so you know, great talking to you again. No, no, go no, ahead. Thank you. Likewise. And it's crazy to think that within two years, I'm going to be living in my 60th year on this earth. So crazy? look forward to skydiving then and doing all these crazy things and swooping and enjoying life as much as possible. Yeah. Well, you know, it's kind of funny that that as far as numbers were counting, I don't think the birthdays count nearly as much as the 30 years in skydiving because that's really when you got things started. Amen. Thank you. Omar, buddy. thank Appreciate you so it. much, Thanks. man. It was a pleasure. Always. Love you. Love you, man. Thank you. Well, there you have it. Another episode of the Lunatic Fringe Podcast brought to you as always by, well, wait, not as always, actually. Brought to you now by Gyro. Formerly known as NZ Aerosports, you'll head to gyro.com for their next level line of canopies. By Pussfoot, the extreme sports collective. Head over to pussfoot.com to check it out. By Summit Parachute Systems, Check out SummitParachuteSystems.com to talk to Jarrett Martin and the gang about kick-ass pilot rigs, rigging courses, and more. By Flyaway Indoor Skydiving. Go to FlyawayTN.com and check out all the cutting-edge stuff to come. By Pure Spectrum CBD. Head to PureSpectrumCBD.com to check out their wide range of CBD products. And as for us, head to the LunaticFringePodcast.com to listen to any of the hundreds of episodes currently available. Hit the link for our YouTube channel, pick up your copy of the Lunatic Fringe book or The Accidental Stripper, and get a sneak peek at upcoming guests. Once again, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you.